Hello, and welcome to the 5 by your Quattro Weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah sells the mysterious seas in Sleeping Gods. Meeple Lady takes it to the streets in Stonewall Uprising. Ruel captures the flag in Challengers. Jose picks up and delivers in his review of Wormholes. But first, here's my review of Trois Dice. Hi folks, this is John Gonzalez. So back in 2020, when most of us were staying at home and keeping each other safe, I started streaming board games on Twitch. I started with a few digital games and some guests. In the three years since, I have streamed hundreds of hours of physical board games, solo, with friends, and with my partner, Lorena. We've played everything from classics to co-ops to Cult of the New. Twa Dice is one of those games, and aside from Cribbage, it's one of the games I've streamed the most. This roll-and-write game from Pearl Games was designed by Sebastian Duhardin, Xavier Georges, and Elaine Orban. Twa Dice is a game that I've felt has gone under the radar a bit, so I thought, hey, why not talk about it a little bit, meditate on why it is that this little roll-and-write with a huge pedigree nearly always comes up when I recommend roll-and-writes to people looking for games in that genre. Well, most of the time, anyway. Okay, so right off the bat, I will say that Twa Dice is not a dice version of Twa. Those looking for a dicier version, no pun intended, will find that the game has less dice than its namesake. Oh, and while Twa Dice shares the same theming, designers, and artists, uh, this won't be a comparison between the two games. I'm evaluating Twa Dice on its own merits and not as an offshoot extension or even a succinct version of Twa. In Twa Dice, you and up to nine other players, yeah, the gameplay is up to ten players, are noble families from the Champagne region of France where they make, um, hold on, let me check my notes, Champagne? That can't be right, can it? Anyway, the game takes place over the course of eight rounds, aka days, which consists of two phases, a morning phase and an afternoon phase. The town crier, aka one of the players, rolls the dice, and these dice, which are these really neat see-through acrylic dice, they're placed on the small double-sided discs that are called plazas. The main board in Twa Dice is a double-layered wheel to which you attach the plazas, which hold the dice from round to round. It also serves to keep track of the eight rounds in the game. Once the dice have been rolled, they are placed in ascending order on the four randomly placed yellow, red, and white plazas, aka discs, on the morning phase, and players can pay any of the associated costs, either influence, money, or knowledge, to mark up their player sheets with the value of that die. Since the dice are clear, they are said to be the color of the plaza they are placed on. Player sheets consist of three main markable areas, red, yellow, and white. These areas are further split into two rows, one that provides you with a pretty strong boon and one that lets you add citizens to your city. The white area, aka the cathedral row, lets you claim end-of-game bonus multipliers, while the white bishopric row lets you add priests, which are worth points at the end of the game. Uh, for brevity's sake, I won't get into what everything does, but there are plenty of tempting choices to make each round, and even when there aren't, you can gain money, influence, and knowledge, which allow you to buy and modify dice results. And who doesn't appreciate when a game lets you mitigate dice results? Repeat for the afternoon phase, and then turn the top part of the double-layered board clockwise so that the day two markings are visible, and boom, you're one-eighth of the way towards completing a full game of Twa Dice. Starting on the third day, however, vandals will start raiding the town and wrecking the plaza and making your progress towards Mega Point them a bit more tricky. 
Whatever plaza the black die ends up on, the corresponding column on your sheet gets destroyed. For example, if the vandal die shows a 2 and ends up on a red plaza, your red column marked number 2 gets wrecked. Wrecked unless, of course, you've managed to protect the entire column from vandals by fortifying your buildings by using a die from the red plaza. One of the things I really enjoy is the destructive effect the vandal die has on your plans. Uh, something something of all the plans of mice and men, yada yada yada, but seriously, balancing the need to protect your columns against a very essential need to fill out the fields in the game is exquisitely and excruciatingly fun. And while the game doesn't really have any player interaction, the table chatter anytime the vandal die is rolled is second to none. Expletives and f-bombs abound. Inside the box of Twa dice, there's plenty of game for its price point. The publisher includes what they call an expansion consisting of tokens that add some more variety to the game, which is fine. There's plenty in the game itself that adds to variability from game to game. So the base game does well to add a bit of spice. Yet, for those of you that want a little bit more, and who doesn't really? The designers have created a dozen or so challenges with modded rules and alternate setups. Every designer challenge also has a scoreboard telling you how the designers themselves scored. It's all very extra and I love it. You can find these designer challenges on BoardGameGeek.com. So why don't I recommend this one every time someone asks for a roll and write recommendation? Well, the short answer is that even with all the little goodies and extra content, the game feels like it's on the cusp of being something great, for me at least. I want it to take a step beyond what it's doing and find its place to really shine. I know, I know, this all sounds somewhat vague and maybe even unfair, but the game does do some neat things with the wheel and the input randomness, but there's just something missing. I'm hoping that somewhere down the line there will be a Twa Dice 2.0, maybe an iterative rethinking of this game that elevates it to where it should be. As it is, if any of this sounded interesting to you, as always, check out the game and let me know what you think. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thank you for listening. I had extremely high expectations for Sleeping Gods. I loved Ryan Lockett's previous storytelling games, my only real criticism being the sometimes uneasy balance between trying to explore and experience the narrative versus trying to gain points and win the game. But Sleeping Gods is co-op? A campaign game with a map? Described as immense and open world? I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. You see a lot of games called campaign games, and some I think stretch the definition just so they can put campaign quote-unquote on the box. But Sleeping Gods really leans into the traditional markers of a campaign game. The map is huge, and you can travel anywhere you want. During your travels, you have encounters where you interact with the world, using skill and or combat to gain items, resources, and new quests. You earn XP, which you can spend to gain abilities. Members of your party become injured or exhausted, and you may have to find a port where they can heal and refresh. You can even encounter NPCs who join your party. Sounds almost like an RPG, doesn't it? For me, Sleeping Gods is kind of like if you took the role-playing out of an RPG and kept the exploration, the adventuring, and the loot collecting. Even without role-playing, there's plenty of narrative in Sleeping Gods. Like all of Red Raven's Arzium storytelling series, Sleeping Gods uses a storybook mechanism. Each location on the map is numbered, and you look the number up in a book to find an encounter you read out loud. There's generally a choice you have to make which determines what happens next. Will you have to pass a skill test, fight, or just talk to someone? You play the crew of a ship traveling an unknown world where magic is real, full of strange people and creatures. 
Each player controls multiple crew members with different skills and abilities. Success in Sleeping Gods hinges on learning how crew abilities work together to greatest effect. Like all Red Raven games, Ryan Lockett's art is a great match to the theme. And the storybook writing by Marjorie Lockett, Ryan Lockett, and Brenna Asplund is top-notch. They've created a world that feels vivid with meaningful choices. And though the encounters can feel a bit random or arbitrary in some of the RZM games, here encounters influence what happens elsewhere on the map. Everything feels connected. I love the open map in Sleeping Gods, knowing that you can go anywhere you want. Quests generally come with a location hint, a cave on an island to the east, that sort of thing, but a precise location is rarely specified. By the middle of our campaign, we had a whole row of quest cards and a bunch of notes on our map, and it leads to such interesting decisions about where to go next. You're never totally aimless, but almost never totally directed either. Just kind of, let's head that way and see what adventures await. It's thrilling. Sleeping Gods is an investment, both in money, the game is not small with many nicely produced components, and time. If you like to try as many games as possible, once or twice each, Sleeping Gods may not be for you. This is a game you play over and over. The flow of people to meet, quests to fulfill, and areas of the map to explore keeps your interest up. But while you can play an individual session as long as you want, there is a timer on the campaign. There's an adventure deck, which you draw from at the beginning of each turn. You go through the deck three times, and then the campaign ends. The rulebook says a campaign lasts 10 to 20 hours, and our experience was on the high side of that and then some. It's hard for me to imagine getting through a campaign in 10 hours. But then again, we like to take our time with narrative games, really dig in and get to know the world. If you're more about gameplay and less about storytelling, it might go quicker for you. As you might expect, the more difficult the challenge in an encounter, the better the reward. Be warned though, the difficult challenges are genuinely difficult. After Sleeping Gods came out, there were complaints about the difficulty level, and Lockett published an update with strategy survival tips and an official easy mode. I want it to be difficult enough to keep us engaged, but not so much that it feels punishing. For the most part, easy mode achieves that, although there was a balancing mechanism a third of the way through that felt almost punitive. I get what they're trying to do, but I didn't enjoy it. When setting the difficulty level in a narrative game like this, I think a lot about something game writer Lee Alexander said. She was talking about video games, but she said, how would you feel if you were reading a really great book and you turned the page and on the next page there was an extra hard Sudoku puzzle and you couldn't read any further until you solved it? How would you feel? Her point was that in a narrative-rich game, beating the game is the point for some players. Experiencing the narrative is the point for others, and both approaches are valid. You know how sometimes when you read a truly great work of science fiction, like the Broken Earth series or the Book of the New Sun, you feel like there's so much more there, like the author has lifted up the corner of a massive curtain and let you have just a peek. That's how it feels to play Sleeping Gods. For me, this game is about getting inside a world that's vast and beautiful and strange and sometimes profound. And that's Sleeping Gods. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you want to talk about narrative co-op games, then I really want to hear from you. The last war game convention I went to, not even a board game convention, but a war game one, I ran across Stonewall Uprising, the fight for gay civil rights, and immediately it spoke to me. I did not expect to see this bright purple and fuchsia rainbow-colored box to be a game being sold at this type of convention. The side of the box writes, Relive and confront the historic struggle for LGBT recognition, rights, and respect. 
I, of course, purchased the game. Designed by Taylor Shush and artwork by Janet Figueroa, Patrick Gomez, Carl Huber, and Mads Huising, Stonewall Uprising came out in 2022 from Catastrophe Games, a small publisher that is passionate about games and history. It's an asymmetrical deck-building game, taking on the fight for gay civil rights. Players either play as Pride, who wants to advance the gay rights movement, or the Man, who wants to slow Pride's progress. The game starts in the 1960s and plays through the 70s and 80s, all the way up to the devastating AIDS crisis, and a familiar expert in the infectious disease world, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Yes, the same Dr. Fauci who would make headlines from the past few years. The game comes with many canvas boards, two for each player's play area, two to hold each player's card market, an event track, and a main player board that features the three support tracks, Systemic, Public, and Individual, the Overton Window, which track the prize player's progress, and the AIDS deaths, which keeps track of the man's win condition. Each player has their own deck of cards and their own market cards to purchase from. Cards are set up on the market based on type, all A cards in the same slot, all B cards in the same slot, etc. And they're shuffled and stacked, with the 60s on top and the 70s later and the 80s last. The later cards come into play as the game moves through each decade. There's also a deck of event cards for each side. They are flipped over whenever the event track triggers, marking the passage of the game through the decades. The game also comes with lots of colorful, multiple-sided dice, plastic cube track markers, and a double-sided cardboard button that says, Gay, Proud, and Angry, or Family Values. Lastly, the game comes with solo rules and a deck of cards for those interested in solo gameplay. The artwork features a vivid kaleidoscope of colors for the pride side, did you really expect anything less, and dour muted grays for the man. Let's just all take a moment and boo this side. Boo! So how does each side win? The moment the man demoralizes 10 people, or when the pride player rolls above the Overton window track, the game ends immediately and the player who completed their objective wins the game. Players begin with their starting cards, drawing five cards into their hand. What's nice about these starting cards is that they have no effects, just a number on the top left corner to move one of the three support tracks toward their side. It gently eases you into playing a deck builder. Players take turns playing one card at a time until they are either out of cards or decide to fold. How folding is used in this game is so clever. When a player decides to fold, their opponent's cards will double in value in relation to support for their tracks. But for every card the opponent decides to play after the other person folds, the person who folded will get that many extra cards to draw on their next turn. It's such an agonizing choice to continue playing for both sides. If people still have cards after folding, they can use the card's value to purchase cards from their respective markets. As players buy higher level cards, they can trigger more actions and events in addition to the number of support on the card itself. It's nice having this escalation of cards to move the game along. The three tracks that players are vying control for are systemic support, public support, and individual support. Cubes start at the starting position on the tracks, but as players play their cards, the cube moves over to one side. When a cube reaches the ends of a track, that player resolves the end zone effect and an event token for that side is placed on the event track. The cube is then reset back to its starting place. When the event track is full, three spaces for the 60s and five spaces for the 70s and 80s, the player with the most event tokens 
flips over an event card for that decade and resolves its effects. Meanwhile, Pride is working to move up the track for the Overton window. As Pride moves up this, the cards become discarded from the man's deck. The man has an opposite action, detaining people from the Pride deck, who then can be demoralized, and demoralized people work toward the man's win condition. And just thinking about all those demoralized people is just so bleak. That mood is felt so poignantly throughout this game. Stonewall Uprising is a constant tug-of-war and a noteworthy deck builder, one that highlights a portion of history that isn't talked about enough. And for a company like Catastrophe Games, who took a chance on developing a game on this issue that's so important to many people, but rarely seen in the board game sphere, well, that makes our corner of the hobby better and more inclusive. And that's Stonewall Uprising! This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and TikTok as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. People and creatures from all corners of the universe have gathered for the greatest capture the flag tournament of all time. Will your team hold the flag long enough to be crowned the champions? Hi friends, this is Ruel Gaviola. On the table is Challengers, a game by Johannes Krenner, Marcus Swetschek, with art by Jeff Harvey. Challengers was published in 2022 by Z-Man Games, who sent me a copy for a video I filmed for the Rattle Runs Through YouTube channel. In Challengers, 1-8 players compete in a 7-round tournament to determine the Capture the Flag champion. Each player has a starting deck of 6 cards, each with different power bases in the form of numbers. Some cards have abilities. Before each round, players draw cards and add one or two of them to their deck. They may remove any cards from their deck, then shuffle their decks to begin a round. Players are matched up in one-on-one games for each round. The first player flips over a card and captures the flag. The second player must play a card or cards that are equal to or greater than the card of their opponent. If they do, their opponent cards are sent to the bench. Play continues until one player cannot equal or beat their opponent's cards, or if they run out of room on their bench or run out of cards to play. The winner of the round earns that round's trophy, which is worth a random number of points. After seven rounds, the players with the most points and the second most points face off in the championship round. The winner of this final game takes home the title. There's something to be said for tournament-style gameplay. The pressure of trying to outscore your opponents over several games. The elation of vanquishing your foes and being the last player standing. Challengers captures the rush of tournament play perfectly. Each round is quick, and before you know it, you're playing your next opponent. Pick up your trophy if you've won a round, grab your deck, rotate seats, and get ready to play again. And just 30 to 45 minutes later, you're tallying up your scores. Trophies are worth random amounts of points, and some cards get you fans, which are also worth points. The top two scores advance to the final match to crown a champion. Challengers surprised me from the get-go. Its main mechanism is from the classic card game of War. You shuffle your deck of cards, then draw them one at a time, trying to match or go over your opponent's face-up card. Challengers, though, adds a few gamer bells and whistles to give it more depth. You have some deck building and hand management as you take new cards before the start of every round. In fact, this is a terrific introduction to deck building. There's no currency to worry about, you just simply add the cards from the designated decks. And once per market phase, you can remove or trash any number of cards from your deck. There's a bit of hand management here. What cards do you take out? What cards do you add? Each faction has different abilities. Do you go for higher numbered cards with no abilities? Or do you add lower numbered cards with special abilities? Of course, you're at the mercy of your card draw. Hopefully you've assembled a deck that can get past your opponent. The neat twist here is that after you've captured the flag, 
only the last card you played is considered to be your value. For example, your opponent has a 5 showing. You play a 4 and a 3 for a total of 7 and capture the flag. Your opponent's cards go to their bench. Now, your most recently played card is the 3, so you tuck your 4 underneath it. Your opponent must now beat or equal your 3. And when you've lost the flag, your cards go to your bench, which is where the hand management comes into play. Everyone only has 6 spots on their bench. You place your defeated cards here, and the catch is duplicate cards only take up one spot on your bench. So, if you ever lose the flag and have to place a card on the bench, but there are no spots left, then you bust it and lose the round. You can also lose the round by running out of cards to play. I love this tension in challengers. On one hand, you want those high-numbered cards, but they're usually more rare, so you won't have too many duplicates, if any. And they'll be taking up one or more of your precious bench spots. On the other hand, you can have duplicates of smaller cards, so you won't be spread too thin on your bench, but of course it may be tough to match your opponent's higher totals. This tension is subtle, and it's what keeps me coming back to challengers, along with the different abilities of the cards. Some give you bonus power points when played, others allow you to draw new cards immediately into your deck, and others gain you immediate fans, which are bonus victory points. It's a lightweight game that feels like war, but the decision points as you add and or remove cards before every round are what makes this game great. I remember playing in local Keyforge tournaments a few years ago. It was a lot of fun, but it could be tough getting everything aligned just right to make it work. Challenges makes it easy to enjoy tournament-style play with gameplay that truly shines at higher player counts. Best of all, an Automa-style deck is included so you can play solo, or if you have an odd number of players, the odd player doesn't have to sit out a round. Instead, they play against the robot player before moving on to the next round of the tournament as normal. While I like the solo and two-player games, if I could only play challengers at the max of eight players, I wouldn't mind a bit. It makes it onto my short list of great games for higher player counts. Thanks to Z-Man Games for the copy of Challengers. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5x. Thanks for listening. Find me on social media at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. The galaxy doesn't stop expanding, and we need to get places that aren't right here. Long-distance travel is long, but we have the technology to, make, to get you there faster. So let's take a look at Wormholes. Wormholes is a game for 1-5 to five Intrepid Pilots who are looking to use their ships to build these wormular holes in order to get passengers from A to 7. That's how far away we're taking these people. The game is designed by Peter McPherson and is published by Alderac Entertainment Group, otherwise known as AEG. Egg. 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 Setup is easy. First, you set out your space station for the appropriate number of players. You place your space tiles in the indicated pattern in the rulebook to, to make sure you follow some simple placement rules. You get your timer stack. Players collect their pieces. And then, last thing you gotta do is shuffle a deck of cards. You can do that. Of course you can. Look at us. Look at how far we've gone. Anyway, once you shuffle those cards, go ahead and deal those out to players as indicated in the book. And you're ready to play. I'm just going to kind of give you the broad strokes of this. There's a couple of extra rules and some of the details that you probably are going to need to read. But on your turn, you get three energy tokens that you can use to move from one space to another. But there's a whole host of free actions that you can do that are really going to get you places. Starting with the titular action, you can place a wormhole token for free next to where your ship is on the board. Wormholes are numbered in pairs, so two ones, two twos, and so on. And you always place your lowest available wormhole first. Once a pair of wormholes is put out, they're now considered active, and this is important because as a free action, you can move through active wormholes. 
So if you're on the blue player's number one wormhole, you can activate it to get your ship to the other blue number one wormhole. That's how they're connected. So they just go back and forth between the two. Now, what if your player is in blue? I hear you ask. And that's fine. Not everyone likes to play blue. I like playing purple. That's Miss Me. But that's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine in this game. You can use any player's worms holes, but if you use another player's worm holes, you're going to give them a victory point, which isn't as bad as it sounds, to be honest. But anyway, more on that later. The cards that you received at the start of the game represent passengers that will give you VPs for delivering them to specific planets. So you can deliver passengers for free, and you can also pick up new passengers while next to any planet in order to keep that VP train going. Choo choo! You can also take advantage of features that are on the map, and they all do kind of different things, like random wormholes that will drop you off somewhere, photon cannons that will shoot your ship across the galaxy and get you far, far away. There's also black holes and nebula that all affect your ships in different ways. Once a certain number of planets are connected to the wormhole network, the game end is going to trigger, and you get a number of turns after that. Once everyone has taken their last turn, it's now part of every board game's favorite part of board gaming. Simple math! Woo! You add up all the points on your cards, your tokens, your bonuses, and, of course, whoever has the most VPs is going to be your winner. Now, you may have recognized the designer's name because the designer also designed the very amazing game Tiny Towns, one of my favorites, also published by AEG. Egg, 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 egg. Much like Tiny Towns, Wormholes is another game that is pretty simple to understand and teach, but gives you lots of wiggle room to explore and race to deliver these passengers however you want. When I first read the rules, I thought to myself, I'll never use any of wormholes. That's so dumb. I'm not dumb. I'm smart. But when I started playing the game, I quickly realized you need to use other players' wormholes in order to get what you need done. And giving them a VP is just a small drop in the bucket of points that you could potentially make for yourself. You see, movement in this game, the standard movement in this game, is painfully slow. Moving from one hex to another, up to three spaces, and that's it. But using the wormholes can get you across the map and next to the planets you need to get to to drop off all those passengers. You're leaving points on the table by not giving your opponent a point or two. I mean, this game isn't called Take Your Time to Get People Where They Need to Be, They Have No Rush. That's just too long of a title. That's just not going to work. You need to use your movement in order to harness the wormholes and take advantage of all the other galactic features. This game scales well between two and five players, but a five-player game can have some downtime issues, especially if you have players that like to think about their turn. I can't really comment on the solo game because I didn't really engage with that part of the game. I'm not much of a solo gamer. Between the random setup, the card draw, I think you're going to be getting a lot of plays out of this game before it starts to feel pretty samey. AG has a really good track record of supporting their games post-release, so I'm really hoping that they do put out an expansion at some point that could give this game some longer legs or something else to think about. I don't think it's needed right away. I think you're going to have plenty of fun with what's in the box for a while, but I do think ultimately either it's going to feel pretty samey or you need to add something that spices this game up a little bit. Wormholes, I think, was overshadowed by a release that came out from AEG around the same time called Guild of Merchant Explorers that also had a similar pick-up-and-deliver feel, but in a different setting. And I think both games are different enough to be worth checking out, picking up, having both 
Wormholes is a fantastic quick pickup and deliver game that I think would be pretty good as a gateway game for a lot of people who don't normally play board games. So, my name is Jose, and you can find me on Instagram at Sir Bresworth and on Twitter at Sir Bresworth One. Please come on by, say hi, let me know what you've been playing. You've been listening to the Five By, your monthly source for board game reviews. Feel free to follow us on Twitter at Five By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash five by games. Join our BGG guild, number 2810. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Check out our website at fivebygames.com. If you like what we do here and want to support our work, visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash five by games. And as always, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more shows like this, check out the Goonhammer Media Network. More info at media.goonhammer.com.